0: Well, it was 2010 when I was invited to join the staff here at uh, New Spring, and I knew I was coming on as the associate pastor. We had I'd been serving at a church in Oklahoma for uh, a few years previous to that, um, and so my dad had sort of given me a list of things that I'd be doing here that were very typical of what you would expect from an associate pastor. Um, but he said, oh, by the way, there's one other thing that I, would, I, I, want, I want you to do when you get here, um, and, and you should know at the time our church was about half the size that it is now, so our weekly attendance was, I want to say, 35. Five thirty-six hundred, um, and he said, uh, I'm, "I just can't do it on my schedule anymore to be doing premarital counseling." He's like, "It's just—it's too much on my schedule." So I'm going to go ahead and move that over to you. So you're going to do premarital counseling. Well. I was a little anxious about that, because if you've heard me talk before on marriage here, you know that Wendy and I had a, a kind of a rough start. Our first few years of marriage were a little difficult. Um, we just had a, a tough time getting along. We had some issues with conflict in those years. And by, now, by the time I was uh, in the ministry and getting ready to come here, it was, it was wonderful. Our marriage was really fantastic, um, and yet I was a little bit worried, I thought, of all the people who would be doing premarital counseling. I mean, I, you know, we had, a, we had a rough go of it at first, but it turned out that that was actually a blessing, because God used our experience in the past to help us be able to to better work with couples that were going through difficult seasons of their own. Uh, So I I just fell in love with doing premarital counseling. I just loved it. It was a lot of fun. Um, And so my dad said, hey, since you love this so much, we're just going to let you do all the marriage stuff. So you're going to do now the marriage counseling instead of just the premarital. You do the whole thing. So now I had two groups of people coming into my office. There were the premarriages, and they still are going through that hormonal euphoria, whatever that magic pixie dust God, you know, sprinkles on people when they're getting married. They've got big smiles and happiness coming into my office, bebopping in, you know. And then they leave, and somebody comes in my office and has been married for 15 years. They don't look exactly like those people that just came out. And I think in in nine years of doing uh, marriage ministry, I started to ask myself the question: What what happens between the couple that comes in my office that's just so excited and happy and thrilled, and this is the most wonderful thing ever, and you know, and then the couple that comes in my office have been married for five years and they're in, you know they're in pretty big trouble. I mean these. You know, the, the, this, you know, doe-eyed, sweet young lady sits there and says, he's just wonderful, he's crazy smart, he's, you know, he's crazy handsome, and he's, you know, he's just crazy about me, and then five years later she's in my office and says, he's just crazy. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what the deal is with this guy, right? So it makes me ask the question, why is our mind so easily changed? Because we don't usually change our mind about other things that we feel strongly about. I mean, think about this. If I were to talk to you today and you were to tell me that you are very politically conservative, if I bump into you five to seven years down the road, chances are you're going to tell me you're still very politically conservative. You feel strongly about that, you don't change your mind. If you were to tell me today that you love pizza and I find you five to seven years from now, chances are you're still going to love pizza, right? Things that we feel strongly about, we tend to stick with. So how is it that things like that we don't change our mind about, but a couple that would stand on a platform just like this in front of a pastor like me will say that they are 100% in this relationship. They couldn't feel stronger about this person that they're marrying. It's going to be a wonderful life together. They are completely in this for the rest of their life and sicknesses and health and poverty's and wealth and the bad that may darken our days and the good that... Can you tell I've done a few weddings? Um, they're 100% in five to seven years statistically... If I were to ask them how they feel about this relationship and about the person that they're married to, they're gonna tell me that they've changed their mind about some things. How is, how is that? Why, in this, most, in this most important human relationship in your life, your most important relationship is your relationship with God, but your most important human relationship is your relationship with your spouse, why, in this very important arena, do we change our minds so quickly? Seriously, I'm not joking. They come in my office. This is what they look like. They're all happy and smiles, you know? This couple to me looks like they just registered. <laughs> and she's like, we're totally getting that bedroom set. And he is like, we are totally getting that 80 inch big screen TV. Yeah. So they come in, this is what they look like. Three years later, it's like this. Why the change? Why the difference? Well, if it's okay with you, I'd just love to give you a little working theory that I have. This is a hypothesis, it's not proven, but I think, I think this is as good as any other theory after working with couples for quite a while, I would tell you that I think it's not that necessarily people change their mind about the person that they've married, although they'll tell you that's what they think has happened, or that they've changed their mind necessarily about the idea of being married to them. It's that we have an expectation of marriage going in, most people do, that turns out not to be what marriage is like once we get in it. And I think it is that marriage does not look like what we expect it to look like when we get into it that causes people to change their mind. And I think primarily... That's based on a myth that our culture has swallowed hook, line, and sinker about what marriage is supposed to be about and what marriage is supposed to be like. It's in popular movies. It's in music. It's in proposals, for Pete's sake, the idea that marriage is supposed to complete me, right? I could do, can I do my best Tom Cruise here? You complete me, right? We, we, <laughs> we have this idea that the other person is supposed to bring to the relationship everything that we lack. Right? That somehow we're supposed to completely balance each other out. I'm not assertive enough, but I married somebody who's assertive enough for both of us. I'm not laid back enough, but I married somebody who's laid back enough for both of us. And when couples are getting married, they think this is wonderful. They say, oh, you have no idea how wonderful it is that opposites attract. You know, I mean, that's just the way it is. They're like, they're like the opposite of me. And man, they, you know, we opposites attract. Absolutely true. Before marriage, opposites attract. Once wedding rings get slipped on fingers, opposites irritate. What used to be cute is not cute anymore, and what used to be quirky is now just flat out insane, right? We think it's going to make us complete. As a matter of fact, we even have a terminology for this in our culture, right? I mean, I'm guilty of this. I'll talk about my better half. Oh, my better half's going to be here in 20 or 30 minutes as though I was a partial person, Right, As though I'm a half a person, Wendy's a half a person, and together we make like a half Jonathan, half Wendy, like Frankenstein. That's freaky. Where did we get this idea that somehow marriage is supposed to make me whole? Marriage is supposed to make me complete. Because if we read the Bible, it's very clear that no human being on this planet has the ability to make me a whole person. You and I both have something in common. Before we have a relationship with God, there is a God-sized hole in each of us. And that's why at New Spring we're so big about finding ways to connect people to God because only God can make you a whole person. No other human being has the ability to do that. And if you expect your spouse to make you whole, you are giving them a God-sized job and they will always feel like a failure and you will always feel disappointed. You see, your spouse can't make you whole. Nobody's capable of, of doing that, right? And so marriage is not a two-headed monster. It's not two half-people becoming a whole person. It is, two, it is two whole people becoming one team. If the myth is that marriage is going to make me whole, the truth is that marriage is about becoming a team, right? Check out what this verse says. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. Now, where did we get this? Myth that marriage is supposed to complete me? Well, actually, we got this myth from a misinterpretation of this verse because if you keep reading, it says, and the two are united into one. In the older translations, it said, and the two become, anybody remember, and the two become one flesh, right? So there was this misapplication of this idea that two individuals come together and somehow become one individual. Well, it was just a misinterpretation of scripture. When the Bible says the two become one flesh, that is a euphemism for sex, Right? And by the way, God created sex, and so God has the right to determine where sex belongs. Listen, cultures are always going to try to mess around with the idea of marriage and where sex is acceptable. At the end of the day, uh, I'm, I'm a believer in God, so I believe God is the only person who has the blue chips to define marriage and to determine where sex belongs. And what the Bible is trying to tell us in this verse is that sex belongs between a man and a woman in a married relationship. But if we back up to what is, the, what is this verse telling us about the, the nature of marriage— it's saying that the nature of marriage is that it's two people that are joined. So marriage is not like being a two-headed monster. Marriage is being a two-person team for the rest of your life. I mean, I I hit our premarital couples pretty hard with this because it's not a matter of is this person going to make my life wonderful for the rest of my life because they don't have that power. The question is, do you want to be on this person's team for the rest of your life? I won't marry a couple until they're willing to tell me of all the other human beings on this planet, this is the person I'd like to serve for the rest of my life because marriage is a relationship of service. Ephesians 5 says that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It means that we put each other first because of what God has done for us. That means that my job is to serve Wendy for the rest of my life and Wendy's job is to serve me for the rest of our life so long as we are both participating in that there is a beautiful balance in the relationship. Well, what does a two-person team look like? Well, we've done, most of us have done this at some point in time. How many of you, when you were a little kid and you were at a friend's birthday party or a school event or something like that, you, you participated in something called a three-legged race? Go ahead and put your hands up because you're scaring me. Okay, good, good. All right, so most of us have. All right, I was worried there for a second. Um, so in a three-legged race, right? It, now it's three-legged race is a sadistic invention of adults who just need something to laugh at to make up for all the work they put into birthday parties, right? Um, but you end up tied to some other person and you've got to go from the start line to the finish line. How many of you who were in three-legged races initially found that it was awkward, strange, weird, and very difficult to get from the beginning? Yeah, right? Because that's what it's like. Why is it difficult and why is it awkward? Because you're not used to being tied to another person. You're used to being by yourself. So if you want to walk over there, you can walk over there. If you want to walk over here, you can walk over there. If you you can change your mind, half course, I was going over there, now I'm going over here. But the moment that you get tied to another person, it's not a matter of where I'm going, it is a matter of what? Where we're going. Because you'll find it's very difficult to go in a direction that other person doesn't want to go in. You're going to be dragging that person along, right? Now, technically, from a physics standpoint, it should be stronger. You should be stronger together. You have more strength together. You have more balance together. There are more limbs making contact contact with the ground. There's more sources of balance. It should be easier. But at first, it's very, very difficult. Well, why do people change their mind about marriage? I think it's because they don't expect that at first it's going to be weird, awkward, difficult, strange, getting used to being tied to another person and going about everyday life when they have been up to this point single. And it's important because it plays into both what we expect from marriage before we get married and what we expect from marriage after we get married. When I used to do one-on-one premarital counseling, these days we do it in classes because our church has grown so large. I think our current class we have 11 couples in. But the time was that I would sit across from couples individually in my office and we would talk about their upcoming marriage. And I would like to just scare the ever-living crud out of them in the first session, just for fun, you know? because at first, they think this is some sort of pass-fail exercise, and if they give me the wrong answers to the questions, they don't get to get married, you know? Um, so then they come in, and I, I ask them this, you know, very simple question. I say, so why do you think you want to get married? Well, it sounds very simple, but it turns out to be a very difficult question, actually, if you haven't really thought it through. And uh, couples would give me answers like, well, we're in love. We're in love. <laughs> okay, well, what does that mean to be in love? Well, you know, Jonathan, love. Good. I hear you. Love. What is love to you? Tell me, like, what does that mean? Well, you know, it's a feeling. It's a feeling you get when you're with them. Okay, I get it. So you're talking about the in love feeling. Yes, we're in love. Okay, good. What else? Well, they make me happy, right? And I think I make them happy. Please hear me. The in love feeling, and because somebody makes you happy, neither of those are good enough reasons to get married. Neither of them are. Let me tell you why. Because the in love feeling and the happy feeling both of those turn out to be very, very fluid. Some days you're going to feel happy, some days you're not going to feel happy. Some days you're going to feel in love, some days not so much. These tend to be up and down sorts of feelings. And so if your expectation is, and by the way, they tend to be pretty stable when you're dating, but then life happens after you get married and they tend to be up and down. And then we start to think, what did I make some sort of mistake? I'm finding out that this relationship isn't as easy as it used to be. When we were dating, this relationship was pretty easy. But now that we're tied to each other and we're having to go through life together, this is a little awkward and a little weird and a little strange. And then we start to wonder, did we make the right choice? We have something in the United States that is now being referred to as the starter marriage. Talking about marriages like homes, it's a starter marriage. You're gonna, you're gonna make the best guess that you can about who you should be with, you're gonna try this marriage out, and in you know, four to five years, if it doesn't seem to be working out, then you'll just call it quits. You just try to make sure that you get divorced before you have kids. Well, here's what I wanna tell you. Statistically, the awkwardness and the strangeness of learning to walk together with another person through life will not be over in four to five years. You are talking about a lifelong commitment. Lord willing, you are going to be with this person 50 or 60 years. As a fraction of the time that you're going to spend together, four to five years is not much. And to to ask myself, am I perfectly happy from the last four or five years of my marriage? Let me tell you what, even people who've been married a long time are going to tell you, well, the last four or five years didn't make me perfectly happy. I've had good days and bad days. Because that's what being on a team is like. Are we better together? You betcha. Is it awkward at first? Oh, yeah. So, we shouldn't be asking the question, Am I in love with this person or will they make me happy? You're going to have back and forth, no matter who you married, there's going to be moments where you can say yes to these questions and moments where you would say no. The big question is Am I ready to play on their team for the rest of my life? And the happy moments and then the not happy moments. That's why the vows are what they are. We don't, the vows are not just a, a decorative flourish of a wedding ceremony. When we talk about for, for better or for worse, it's because teams have better moments and they have worse moments. The question is, am I ready to be on this team regardless? So we're going to talk about two things that you need to have to have a healthy marriage. I tried, to, I tried to back up. I've been speaking on marriage at New Spring since 2008. That was even before I came on staff here. So I've been speaking on marriage here for like 11 years. Um, and I've done a lot of talks on this topic. I really wanted to take a fresh perspective on this. Our, t- our, our series is healthy. I wanted to think about what are the things that make a marriage healthy. And, and I really came up with a list of two things, and they're the same two things you need to be successful in a three-legged race. So our metaphor holds nice and tight. But I, I do want to talk about the fact that I know I have two, two groups of people in this room. I have some folks in this room that you're contemplating marriage. Marriage is out, out in somewhere in your future. So this will be very important for you because this will play in somewhat to who you think should make the cut. But for some of the rest of us in this room, we're already married, right? So this does not mean, if this is something, if these things are things we're struggling with, doesn't mean we should toss our marriage out the window and go find somebody that these things will work with, right? It means that these are areas that we need to work on in our marriage. I say that because there's an old story floating around. My dad used to tell this story. There's an old story of a missionary who went to go work with this tribal people that had never been reached before. And when he got there and he started working with this tribal people, he noticed that there had, they didn't have any kind of wedding ceremony as part of their culture and it really bothered him. And he said, and no, we need to get this right. You know, he's like, we need to have a big wedding ceremony, and everybody will, you know, all the, the, the husbands and wives will get married, and then it'll be, you know, and then it'll be right. We need to have this ceremony. And the, the chief of the tribe said, okay, we'll do this. So they had this big ceremony. It went really well. And afterwards, the missionary was talking to this tribal chief, and he said, Well, how did you feel about this? He said, Oh, I thought it was great. And he said, the missionary said, Well, what was the best part, do you think? And the chief said, I think the best part was when we all got new wives, right? Okay, so you caught that. Okay. So this is not about all of us going, oh, see, we messed up. We should have somebody different. This is about the areas that we need to develop in our marriage. And there are two. Here they are. If you want to have a great marriage, um, same thing as you need to have a successful three legged race one is direction, and one is connection. You want to have a successful marriage, you need to have direction and you need to have connection. And if you're struggling, chances are um, the struggle that you're having in your relationship is going to fall into one of these two categories. So we're just going to explore these uh, for the rest of our time together today and we're going to be done. The first thing that we're going to explore is direction. Because if you are in a three-legged race with somebody, there is no longer my direction and their direction, there is our direction, Right? Um, so Amos in the, in the Bible talks about this in Amos chapter three, verse three, it says, can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction? And uh, uh, one translation says without first agreeing on the direction. I kind of like that translation better, right? The, the truth is, if you want to get somewhere in your married life, there's got to be some sort of meeting of the minds about how we're going to get there and about whether or not it honors the goals that both of you have. I tell our pre-married couples that one of the most wonderful things about being married is that you're not single anymore. In Genesis 2, the Bible says it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll create a helper who is right for him. He could have as easily said it's not good for the woman to be alone, just Eve wasn't created yet. The point is, we were built, we were built by God to live in this sort of intimate relationship. And so uh, one of the best things about being married is that you're not single anymore. But I also tell our pre-married couples the hardest thing about being married is that you don't get to be single anymore. Because you don't get to, the math isn't as simple. As it is when you're single. When you're single, figuring out what you're going to do, how you're going to go about your life, and what sort of uh, actions you're going to take, pretty simple, right? You have your fears. These are the things you don't want to see happen. You have your goals. These are the things that you do want to see happen. And then you triangulate a solution. This is what I'm afraid of. This is what what my goals are. This is what I'm going to do. So, what happens when two people who are used to handling their life that way get married? They each have their own fears, they each have their own goals, they each triangulate their own solution, and then they bring their solutions to each other, and guess what happens? They don't match. And now, it's a matter of seeing who's going to be the heavy, who's going to get their solution across the goal line, and the other person's going to have to give in. Problem with that is, if that happens in your relationship, that means one person's always going to be in the engineering car of that train, and the other person's going to be hanging off the back end of the caboose with their heels digging into the railroad ties as it goes down the track. You may have some progress in that relationship, but it's going to be very slow and very frustrating. Listen, if you don't agree on the direction, what is going to happen is you're either going to get very angry with each other because you're pulling apart the whole time, or you're going to get so frustrated that you both sit down in the grass and say there's no point. Those are the kinds of couples I have that come in my office. They're either really angry at each other because they've been pulling apart for so long. Each of them has their own direction. They come to my office so that I will fix their spouse. They arrive at my office and they, they, they sit next to their spouse and they sort of point, fix them, you know? Tell them to get with the program. This is where I'm trying to go in life and they will not cooperate. And then their spouse tells me, well, this is where I'm trying to go in life and they won't cooperate. Here's the problem. There is no, this is where I'm going and this is where I'm going. At some point, there's gotta be, this is where we are going or it's not gonna work. I'm not saying every goal that you have as a person has to match your spouse's. Again, remember two individuals becoming one team. I'm saying that generally, you need to be going in the same direction. There's a verse that people use often uh, in the scripture that talks about being unequally yoked. What is, what is God trying to talk to us about there? God's saying, look, if you, if you don't even agree on who God is and on, on, what, having, uh, on the fundamental of having a relationship with God, then how are you going to walk together in the same direction in life? You need to be able to agree on the fundamentals. You need to, you need to have a general direction that you're moving in. Satan's biggest marriage ending strategy, I personally believe this to be true, is getting married people to live like single people. And the first step is getting them to try to go in two different directions at the same time. So how do you check direction in your marriage, right? let me just give you a little exercise you can do. When you get home, married couples in this room, give you two questions to ask each other, just to test how things are going with your direction. The first question is this, where are we going? Right, this is a we question. Where are we going in life? What are, the, what are we trying to accomplish on this planet together? The two of you are together forever. For the rest of one of your lives on this planet, you're going to be moving forward together as a couple. The question is, where are you going? And the second question is, what's our next step? Did you know that a shared goal is one of the biggest predictors of marital happiness going forward? You have something that you're trying to accomplish together. So where are we going and what's our next step? By the way, just super quickly, it's not just about goals. There's there's two things I really want to encourage you to talk about as you talk about the direction you're headed in life with your spouse. The first one is goals. The second one is ground rules. These days, the majority of people that are coming into my office are coming into my office because somebody crossed the line. And so we're working through the aftermath of that. But one of the things that I will ask them is I'll say, what are the ground rules in your marriage? And I'll get this blank stare. Well, what I'm trying to say is, what are the lines in your relationship that you've agreed on shouldn't be crossed? And what's going to happen when those lines get crossed? Again, there's nothing there. Well, we just never talk about that. I'm not really surprised at that point that lines got crossed because it turns out the lines are very blurry. Every couple should know, what are the ground rules in your relationship? I'm not saying that it should be the same for every couple, but you should at least know what the ground rules are. Just an example of what a ground rule can look like, my wife and I... Um, follow what is often referred to as the Billy Graham rules. It sort of makes us an antique, probably. Some of you couples would think of us as as antiques in this sense, but that's okay with us. It works for us. and So what does that mean? It means, number one, you will not find me in an enclosed area with a member of the opposite sex that does not have incredibly high visibility. So generally speaking, I would not be in my office with another lady without Wendy being present. On the rare and odd occasion where that would happen, I have big windows in my office and my shades are 100% open because I want anybody to be able to see what's going on in there. We do not ride in cars alone with members of the opposite sex. We don't hang out alone with members of the opposite sex. We don't eat. You'll not find me at a restaurant eating with some other lady Wendy not present. You say, well, Jonathan, do you think you could do those things? And, you know, do you think you have to have those rules so that nothing bad will happen? No, I, I'm, I'm, sure that, I'm, I'm sure that not having those rules would not immediately mean that something terrible would happen. The point is, we need to have ground rules. We need to have structure. Andy Stanley, pastor of North Point Church in Georgia, makes this point, point. I think it's a really good one. He says that if you ever drive in the mountains, you see the guardrails that they put up against the, the sides where the drop-offs are. My wife and I lived in Wyoming for a while, so, so we remember this. And if you look at those guardrails, they don't put them right on the, on the very edge of the cliff because if you brushed up against it at that point, you're going over the cliff. There's no time to course correct. But instead, they put those guardrails well within the safety zone so that if you were to brush up against it, you would have time to correct course before tragedy happens. Why do we use something as strong as the Billy Graham rules as ground rules in our relationship? Because we want that well within the safety zone so that if there's any brushing up against it, there's plenty of time to, to change course to course correct. So you need to have goals, you need to have ground rules, you need to be clear on the direction that you're going. But direction isn't the only thing. We said the other thing that you need is connection. right? A lot of the couples that I see coming into my office are struggling with this area of connection. Now, what do we mean by connection? Well kind of using our metaphor here. Remember when you were doing that three-legged race and you were at this other kid's party and, and they team you up with this other person? It did not matter if you've never met this kid before in your entire life. It did not matter if you didn't know them from Adam. You still walk up to them and what do you do? You put your arm around them, right? Because you know that if you lean away from this person, you're gonna lose. The only way you're gonna win, the only way you're gonna win is if you lean in. And that's good advice for us as couples. Because I see a lot of folks that think that they're kind of leaning in and they're kind of not. They're sort of like 20% leaning into the relationship. Well, that doesn't work. You can't kind of lean in. You're either close or you're not close. So let's talk about connection and what it takes to have it in the relationship. First off, let's look at what God says. In Genesis 2, the Bible says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. And that word helper in the Hebrew has two meanings. One meaning is to be a companion, somebody who goes alongside. And the other meaning is a hero, somebody who's there for you, somebody who has your back. As a matter of fact, there's a couple places in the Old Testament where this word is used to reference God. So I am I'm called to be Wendy's companion hero, just as Wendy is called to be my companion hero. And the only way that works is if we're leaning into the relationship and if we're connected. So in the time that we have left, which is very brief, we're going to talk about three ways to lean in. Married couples, building the connection is probably the, the first order of business if you want to see your marital happiness go up. So I'm going to give you three ways um, that you can lean in on the relationship. This will be a good thing to take notes on. The first one is very important. If, if you are a member of the male species in this room, and you have checked out on me, this would be a good time to check back in. <laughs> because the first one really applies to you. It applies to everybody who's married, but guys especially, this one is important uh, for you, and we'll talk about why in just a second. But the first way you can lean into your relationship is to listen, right? To use these ears that God gave us. And, and it's very important, guys, for us to recognize that, that men and women communicate differently, Uh, one researcher who's very um, intelligent about this is Deborah Tannen. She's a sociologist. She's done work uh, in this area. She says that men and women have different communication styles. She said that, that men use what she calls report talk, meaning... That we want the report. That's how we listen, and that's how we talk. We want the, the you know, basic, give me the data I need to survive in this household tonight. I, I want it packaged nice and tight. Give me the, just the basic information that I need, right? Because that's what communication is about, is to share whatever the information is at hand. But ladies don't use report talk. It's different for them. Uh, Deborah says that ladies use what is called rapport talk. So yeah, it's not just about exchanging information. It's partly about that, but it's also about building a relationship. Part of communicating, part of talking and listening is about bringing a relationship closer. So what does that mean practically? Well, it means that your end of the day conversation about how the day went is going to look differently between the two of you. Guys, we're like CDs. You know, if you ask us a question, we just skip to the salient track and press play, right? Wendy says to me, how was your day? I skipped to track eight. It was fine. That's all I got. You know, you're gonna to have to ask me something specific if you want any more information than that, right? I'm gonna to have to go to that track and press play. Ladies are different. For ladies, it's more like it's on tape. And, and it's in chronological order. And you don't skip from here to there, you go in order. Like, you go through the whole thing step by step. And it's all in story form. And if you ask her, you're gonna get it in story form. She's going to give you all the details. She's going to tell you what happened first and then what happened later. She's going to give you all of the conversation verbatim. Um, and she may, if she really likes you a lot, she may even act it out for you with dramatic voices so that you know who the hero and who the villain is in this particular story, Right? She's going to tell you how she felt about what happened at the time, how she feels right now about telling you about how she felt at the time. She's going to tell you about how something like that happened to her before, but it wasn't like that. It was actually different. And right about now, the average guy, we're just starting to glaze, you know, that's a lot of information right now. Don't glaze. Here's why. Why does, why, does she, why does she communicate with you like that? It's not because she's going to test you later. It's because you weren't there with her for her day, and communication for her is partially a bonding exercise. So what she is doing, she's grabbing you by the back of your collar, and she is dropping you into the middle of everything she experienced in that day so that it is as though you are a part of the day that she's experienced, so she feels closer. Am I getting this, ladies? Is this close? Am I close? Okay, good. I just want to make sure. Right? So what happens when we glaze and we check out or heaven help us, we grab our cell phone, start scanning through stuff, right? Um, It communicates a message that we would never want to send. It basically communicates a message that says, you're not important to me and I don't care what happened to you today. Guys, I know you. I know you would never want to send that message, but it it can easily be sent. That's why it's so important for us to listen. If we want to lean in, we've got to listen, right? Here's another one. The second thing is this. We need to insist on together time. One of the biggest statistical predictors of of success in marriage is the amount of our expendable time that we are willing to spend together alone. See, a lot of us, we treat alone time and we put it in the would-be-nice category. Yeah, it would be nice if we could do date night. It would be nice if we could spend some time together alone. Let me just disillusion you of the idea that any of that stuff's gonna happen. Anytime we put something in the would-be-nice category, it is gonna take a miracle of God for it to happen given how busy our lives are at this point. If we want our relationship to be wonderful, we're gonna have to put time together alone in the must category. We're going to have to say whatever it takes we're going to find a way to spend time together as a couple. Now ladies, this is one area too that I want to give you a little heads up on as well. Because we know a little bit about how time together works um, and how that it's different for women versus for men. See, women connect really eyeball to eyeball, face to face, um, talking, communicating. This is a large way of how they communicate. Our friend Dr. Les Parrott talks about how in Seattle there with all the little coffee shops, if you go in there, you'll see two ladies talking to each other. Maybe they're having a Bible study or maybe they're just talking, but they're you know eyeball to eyeball leaning in at the table maybe one's even got their hand on the other one's hand you just don't see that a lot with guys you know um the truth is what we now know from research is that guys connect more in shoulder to shoulder activity than they do in eyeball to eyeball activity right none of your husbands call their friends and say to their buddies hey do you want to go over to starbucks and talk you know um right they hang out together, they do stuff together, right? Shoulder-to-shoulder activities. So if you want to have your husband open up and talk to you, it might be a good idea to think about what are some shoulder-to-shoulder activities we can do. Because if you just decide we're going to go out and have a wonderful meal and sit down and look at each other across the table and talk about our feelings and our hopes and dreams and stuff like that, you're going to go to that table, you're going to sit down on this date night with your husband, and they're just going to sit there and stare at you. And you're going to say, hey, uh, Let's, let's talk, let's talk, I just want to hear what's going on, uh, let, uh, talk with me, just, seriously, open up, talk, and he's going to go, sup. <laughs> and you're going to be like, uh, well, we need to find something to talk about, and he's going to be like, okay, well, the food's good, you know, uh, shoulder-to-shoulder activities. Now, how important are shared activities in general for a marriage? Well, let me show you a graph that I think is kind of helpful. Check this graph out. This, this solid line here is marital happiness. Notice how after marriage, it kind of dips down a little bit, and then it starts to head back up. By the way, this is the 40-year mark. How many couples do I have that have been married 40 years? You are on the upswing, my friends. Okay. But here's what I want you to watch. Check out this dotted line that represents shared activities. You notice how it takes kind of a nosedive at the beginning, and it seems like the happiness line kind of follows it. And then as shared activities are going up, the kids have kids moved away. It's an empty nest now. Notice how that line is starting to come back up. Now, here's the thing. I'm enough of a statistics nerd to tell you that happiness then does not necessarily predict, you know, shared activities. And shared activities doesn't necessarily predict happiness. But what we do know statistically is they seem to go together. So if we want to experience more marital happiness, it would not be a bad strategy to try figuring out how do we have more shared activities as a couple. So I wouldn't leave you hanging on this. I want to give you a way you can do that. Let me show you a strategy that you can use to actually have more shared activities in your marriage. You can do it now. Not wait for 40 years. Let's let's do it now, okay? So this is something we teach our couples in premarital. It's called the 3-2-1 plan. This would be a good thing to take notes on. So here's how the 3-2-1 plan works. It is that in the course of a year... You're going to do three things that are specifically for marriage enrichment. You're going to do, could be going to a marriage conference, it could be doing some sort of uh, event with the Married Life Ministry here at New Spring, or it could even be that the two of you just go to the local Christian bookstore, pick a really great marriage book out, and you know, at night you read through a chapter together until you're through the book. Something like that. But you're going to do three things uh, for marriage enrichment in your relationship. Two overnight getaways. For Pete's sake, get out of Dodge right? Go, go somewhere away from the normal stresses and strains of life and do not take work with you. Turn off the work notifications, get unplugged for a little bit, and really spend those two overnight getaways uh, focusing on each other. And then this is the hard one, one date night a week. One date night a week. You say, Jonathan, there's no way we could do it. Here's the thing, we tend to make the things happen that we think are most important in life. We can make it happen, it just may mean that we have to sacrifice in other areas, but we can make it happen. Three marriage enrichment events, two things that we're gonna do where we're gonna go away for uh, an overnight uh, trip and then one date night a week. Now, by the way, I, just, just a thought, our marriage retreat that's coming up <laughs> is both a marriage enrichment event, an overnight getaway, and we even have a date night built in on Saturday night. So I'm not saying, I'm just saying, okay? Okay. Um, <laughs> Something to think about. All right, so here's the last thing. I told you I was going to give you three ways that you could lean in. Here's the last one. The last one is this. You need to invest. You need to invest. You need to be willing to sacrifice for your marriage, to put something into it. You're not going to get anything out of your marriage if you're not putting something into it. I'm talking to some guys in this room that the last time you bought your wife flowers, Reagan was president. At some point we've got to determine uh, how are we going to build this relationship up? What are we going to put into it? Let me show you what Jesus said in Matthew. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. What is Jesus saying? He's saying your heart will always follow your investment. Always, always, always. What you are passionate about and what you are into is always going to be a function of what you invest in. I talk to couples all the time who tell me they've fallen out of love. Nobody falls out of love. We only ever fall out of investment. And then we wonder why our feelings aren't the same. If we wanna have stronger feelings in our relationship, we need to make a stronger investment. I'm gonna, I'm gonna finish with this. I, I, have a, I have a weird, I'm just weird how I think about some weird things. So I'm just gonna tell you, this is probably a weird observation to close out a message with, but I'm gonna do it anyway. I do a lot of weddings, that's true, but I also do quite a few funerals and um, I've, I've spoken at several funerals for people who've been married for 50 or 60 years, and right before the message, I always talk to the spouse, and I ask them, is there a favorite verse or anything specifically that you would like me to include in the, in the, you know, in the message? And uh, they'll tell me about what it was like to lose their spouse and how difficult it's been for them. I have yet for any one of these people to tell me it's just so hard for me that they've passed away because they were just so hot, Or because they made me happy every day of my life because they didn't. Or because every day of our life together, we were so in love because there were days where they weren't. You know what those people will tell me? They'll say, we made such a good team. Together, we were better than we were apart. We brought something to each other's lives. I'm increasingly convinced that if we want to have great marriages, we have to begin with the end in sight. Here's the deal. If Wendy outlives me, I want her to someday be able to say Jonathan was a great teammate. She doesn't need to say Jonathan was hot because look at my hairline. It's already gone. That ship has sailed, (laughs) right? I just want her to be able to say he was a great teammate and we were better together. You can be better together too. It takes direction and it takes connection. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love and for the fact that you've shown us what relationships are really all about. Help us to live out your love in our marriages. Help us to have strong, connected uh, relationships where we can move forward in the direction that you've called us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here this weekend.